turn again to the book of Ezekiel this evening, this time to chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, this is on page 864 in your pew Bible, 864, or Ezekiel 36. And I hope to read verses 16. Verse 16 to the end. So Ezekiel 36 and verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord God, 
This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so will the waste cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Dear congregation, this morning we had a sermon on total depravity, the terrible predicament of the human soul. That not only do they do evil, but they're inclined to evil. And what a blessing this this evening, congregation, that we can turn to a portion of of Scripture that will now give us the answer to that. Really, the, the flip side then of our inability and our sin and our condition by nature. But then what we can be by super nature or above nature, supernatural work that God will do. God brings that to us this evening. And so the morning and the evening sermon really go together, congregation. It would be a pity to take the morning sermon all on its own and, and, and to end there. But really to end here tonight where the, where the prophet Ezekiel will take us. And in our text this evening in Ezekiel 36, we see in the first place then a God's dilemma. And in the second place, God's solution. And in the third place, new covenant blessings and then some application. But in the first place, God's dilemma. Now let me begin by just saying, when we speak of God's dilemma already, we feel a little uncomfortable with that, don't we? As if God would have a dilemma, as if God would be in a situation that puzzled him or or caused him confusion. Of course, we know that's impossible, isn't it? And yet it's true that the scripture often represents God in human ways. And I put that big word there on the outline for you, anthropomorphism, right? In other words, anthropos, right? That's the word for man. And morph, the word for form. So in the form of human experience, in the form of human words, we find that all the time in scripture, right? We talk about the arm of God. We talk about God repenting. You know, perhaps, uh, you know, you've heard of the the movement uh, in theological circles called the openness of God theology. And these are people who interpret these things quite literally, as if God really did have a dilemma. He really didn't know what to do. So he was thinking and pondering, and he decided to do this. Now, of course, we reject that out of hand. But what we do uh, say as Reformed interpreters, that we understand that there are these anthropomorphisms, right? Where God is represented to us in human terms and in human concepts. Now there's something of a mystery there, of course, isn't there? But we expect that. We expect that, don't we? Uh, Maybe you've heard the expression from Calvin where he says in his institutes that God lisps to men so that they will understand him. Just as a parent, right? We have baby talk with our children. We talk in a foolish way to them, right? Uh, but we do that so they understand and they hear what we're saying. Well, in the same way then, we have God lisping to us, God speaking in these human terms about his own infinitely great majesty. Well, then, God's dilemma. And we find that dilemma right away in verse 17. We began in verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, so now Ezekiel is going to receive another word from God. 
right? And he's now responsible for bringing this without alteration to the people. And in verse 17, it says that uh, God speaks to Ezekiel and says, Son of man, the house of Israel was living in their own land. Now again, if you think back about Ezekiel, Ezekiel is not in Israel. Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's by the Kabar River in Babylon. And remember that at one point in time, Israel dwelt in their land, in the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lived there. But God speaks to Ezekiel and says they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. And he represents it very graphically. Their uncleanness of a woman in her impurity, her, her monthly impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them. Right? God punished them. He sent them off into exile. He, he sent them out of the land. The city of Jerusalem was burned. Temple destroyed. And Israel was pushed out of, their, out of the land that God had promised to them. In verse 19, I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the lands. And that was God's judgment upon them. But then in verse 20, we read again something of this dilemma that happens now. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. Because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And you see, Lord is all capitals, right? That's God's personal name. These are the people of Yahweh. Yet they have come out of his land. Now, in that expression, uh, dear friends, is this understanding that the people of Israel were in their land. They were in the land of Palestine. There they were. They were prospering there. God took care of them. But then in came the Assyrians. In came the Babylonians later. And they conquered those people. They conquered the nation of Israel. So in the thinking of the nations, Yahweh, Jehovah, who was the God of Israel, failed. He tried hard to protect his people. But he couldn't defeat the God of the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in there. They conquered the city of Jerusalem. They took the people off into exile. And so the word in the ancient Near East at that time was, Yahweh is a very powerful God. We heard of his powerful things that he'd done to the Egyptians and all throughout Israel's history. But he, I, mean, I say this reverently now, right? He, he met his match when he, when, he, when he met the God of the Babylonians. You know that in the ancient Near East, there were all these local deities, right? Each area had their kind of God, right? Babylon and Assyria and Israel and the Philistines and the Edomites and the Ammonites and the Moabites, right? They all had their sort of kind of local deity. They had a God that was responsible for them to protect and to care for them. Well, God's name is not profane because as Israel goes out into the nations, as they've been driven off into exile, the people look at them and they say their God was not able to protect them. Right? That's what we read at the end of verse 20. These are the people of the Lord. Yet they have come out of his land. Yet, in other words, God was not able to protect them. And there they have been driven out of his land. So this is the dilemma then that God gives us here in this chapter. How will God protect his name? How will he show the nations that he is the almighty God? And in verse 21 we read, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Now you remember in the, in the book of Isaiah, remember what God says about Assyria. Remember God said that Assyria, which conquered the, the ten tribes in the north, was his rod that he used to beat Israel, to punish them, to whip them as it were. 
Far from God being weak and being unable to protect his people, God was actually using the Assyrians to discipline his children. Now, of course, the nations don't know that. But now, now God needs to make that clear to them. He needs to manifest that to the nations. How will he do that? Well, in the first place, we have then in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So God makes it clear in the first place, I'm not doing this because of something that you have done. I'm not doing this because I pity your misery. I'm not doing this because I think you deserve it. I'm doing this to protect the glory of my name and to manifest the glory of my name to all these nations where you've profaned it. You've dragged my name through the mud, as it were. And I am now going to act to magnify my great name. And in verse 23, you see, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And what will God do? What will God do then? How is he going to act? Well, we, we have that in verse 24. He is going to gather up his people He's going to go to all the nations where they were gathered and he's going to find each one. No, none will be left behind. He'll grab each one and he'll bring them back to the nation of Israel. He'll bring them back. And then God is going to do a work on his people such that God's name is now not profaned but magnified, glorified in his people Israel. Now, three things. This is the second point. God's solution. How will God make His people to be a people that magnify His name and not desecrate and profane it? Well, in the first place, in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. So the sin of Israel is like a stain on them. But now God comes and he sprinkles that clean water on them to purify them. This is what God is going to do. Right? God is now going to take matters into his own hands. Israel failed and now God is going to do a work. He is going to sprinkle them with clean water. Now you know that there were many sprinklings in the Old Testament worship. The priests, uh, before they uh, were... Uh, uh, ordained into their office. There was a sprinkling ritual there, a purification ceremony, right? You know that uh, when a person touched a dead body or when they were in the tent uh, and somebody died in that tent, remember then there was the water of purification. Remember the water mixed with the ashes of the red heifer? And, and then somebody would take, those, take that water, which by the way now was not clean water, was it? It actually was very dirty water. It was mixed with ashes. And that water was sprinkled on them, Right? And they were purified, of course, not purified in a physical sense, right? But in a ceremonial, in a, in a religious sense, they were ceremonially cleansed by that water being sprinkled upon them. And of course, you know that in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, there was the bronze laver, right? That huge bronze a pool, really, was what it was, and right before the temple door. And the priests, every time, never were they allowed to enter that temple 
without washing first in that laver, in that pool of water. So washing, very important in Old Testament worship. And now God says, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to do this to you. I'm going to sprinkle that clean water upon you and you will be clean. That's necessary. You can never come into the presence of God without being purified. Nor can you ever come back into God's country, into God's land, right? The promised land that Israel dwelt in at one time. In order to go back to that land, you first had to be purified. And so I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Now in the second place, in verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'm going to skip that part about the new spirit because that's the third thing. I will give you a new heart and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now congregation, this takes us immediately then back to this morning. Because God says, uh, not only can I just teach you some things and show you a new way to live, right? No, no, now God says a more radical action is necessary. They need to be sprinkled, they need to be purified, but now God needs to reach into them and He needs to remake their heart. He needs to take the old heart out. It can't be renovated, it can't be fixed, it can't be propped up. It, it, nothing can be done with that old heart, but to pull it out, it needs to be taken out. And a, a new heart needs to be uh, implanted. And again, the, the language of heart here is, is talking about the human soul, right? The deepest part, the, the, the thing that drives us, the thing that controls us and our behavior and our choices. God says it can't be fixed. It needs to be completely redirected and replaced. And notice what it says there, right? That he says it's a heart of stone, right? And that's, that's what well, anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament knows that the Israelites had that heart of stone. It couldn't be affected. You could, you could preach to it. You could call to it. You could beg. You could threaten. You could punish. And, and, and all the sacrifices that were represented before the people, but it never seemed to have any effect. What would break the heart of the children of Israel? What would give them a broken heart and a contrite spirit? Nothing, it seems. Nothing, it seems. And so now God says, there's going to be a heart surgery here. Well, I'm going to take out your old heart of stone and I'm going to put back in there a heart of flesh, a heart that will beat with love to me, a heart that will be broken over your sin, ashamed of your guilt, and a heart that will love me. <coughs> Notice, congregation, it's not a matter, is it, of just sanding off the wood. Remember this morning? Sanding down the wood, putting some stain on it, and making it look beautiful. Again, I, I, just, I look at these verses, right, and it just gives the lie to all that idea that we should think and, and value ourselves and, and try to do better. You see here, really, the whole reform doctrine of regeneration. I, I hope to say something about that in a minute. But a new heart, a new heart will I give you. And then a new spirit in the third place, a new spirit. Now, uh, notice that it's in verse 26, you see the decision of the translators here uh, to... Uh, not capitalized spirit. I will give you a new heart and a new and put a new spirit. That's not capitalized. That's their decision, right? In, in the Hebrew, it's the same word. A new spirit within you. But now look what they did in verse 27. Okay, and good, well done. 
I will put my spirit, now it's capitalized, isn't it? My spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? That's the third person of the Holy Trinity. That now God says, in order for Israel to be a society that magnifies my name, that doesn't desecrate and profane it, I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit. They're going to be purified with clean water. They're going to have a new heart that beats with love for me. And I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit. Now that, this is radical, isn't it, congregation? I mean, this is serious. Now God isn't talking to them about taking their spirit and, and making their spirit to be a nicer spirit, a spirit that is more in tune with how God would want them to live and to act. No, God gives them His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit indwells them. Now that, that, that's a radical solution, isn't it? That's a radical, deep-seated, it's a complete uh, replacement of the human soul, isn't it? Uh, I love the preachers who used to say that what, they, what Israel once loved, they are now going to hate. They used to love idolatry. They used to love the gods of the nations around them. Now they're going to hate it and despise it. Because God's going to give them that new heart and that new spirit. And what they once hated... Right? They never seem to love to follow God and to be submissive to Him. Now they're going to love. That's a very radical change. And these now are the new covenant blessings that we hope to consider in the third place. New covenant blessings. Because now when you look at the prophecy that Ezekiel made, and you compare that with the preaching of the New Testament preachers, you see that connection. Think first of John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer says... He, he, he preaches, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I will put a new spirit within you. And now John the Baptist, well over hundreds of years later, he steps out by the Jordan River there in Palestine and he cries out to the Jewish people, I will baptize you with water. But that's just a picture of this greater baptism when the Messiah will come and he will baptize you. And now think of baptize in terms of an immersion, right? In terms of a flood. The Holy Spirit will come down upon you, right? In other, in other texts it says he will be poured out upon you. He will be poured out upon you. And, and you'll be you'll be immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come down upon you. It's really the same thing as what Ezekiel is saying, I will put my Holy Spirit within you. And John the Baptist says, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit will take control of you and with fire. Jesus says, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? These words are so familiar to us, right? Jesus said to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a man who knew the Jewish theology and Jewish life, he said, except one be born from above, I think that's better than born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now again, think of how radical this is. He's not saying, again, that you can, uh, well, you know, try harder, do this, focus on that, you know, self-help kind of thing, no. He says you need to be completely born again. The person that you are now needs to almost die and be buried in the grave. And you need to be born again, a whole new person. 
Everything needs to change, says Jesus. Again, a new heart, a new spirit, and being sprinkled with water, as Ezekiel said. What did Peter say at Pentecost? Peter says at Pentecost, I will pour forth of my spirit. Here Peter is quoting the prophet Joel, who made a similar prophecy as Ezekiel. But Peter is quoting Joel. I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Right? I will put a new spirit within you. And what does Paul say? Paul, in Romans 2, verse 29, says, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, not ethnically, not biologically a Jew, not genetically, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And how do you become that kind of inward Jew? And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit. I will put a new heart within you. And now Paul, preaching about the the blessings that God would give to his people, says that God will circumcise your heart. He will cut off the sinful nature that is so glued to our heart. God will cut it off. Your heart will be circumcised. It will be made new. No longer will it be controlled by the flesh, by sinful desires. But God will circumcise that heart. He'll cut off the sinful nature that controlled it in the past. And it'll be controlled by the Spirit of God. What congregation? All this, all these preachers in the New Testament are just are announcing these blessings that Ezekiel prophesied in the, back, in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in the Old Testament. That God now takes matters into His own hands. Where the people of Israel profaned His name, God says, now you've tried, you've done enough, you've dragged my name through the mud. Now I'm going to act. I'm going to act. And I'm going to do a one-sided work upon your heart. And I'm going to throw out the old heart and put a heart of flesh in it. I'm going to sprinkle you with that clean water. And I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And now, now what a difference. Now those people can praise the name of God. Now they'll lift up the name of God. They'll magnify it. And all the nations will see that God is King, the great King, the Creator of heaven and earth. All the other gods are just dust in the balances. They're nothing. They're but men. When God does this work, what a blessing, congregation, that is. And what an answer that is to what we discussed also this morning. That in the place of our total depravity, there is a total renovation of our nature that God is willing to do. That God will do. That's why I say the evening answers the morning. Well, let me bring this then into the present. First, my point of application here is regeneration. This is this is regeneration. You know that term from your Sunday school and catechism classes. And this is why we talk of regeneration in our Reformed churches. And regeneration is just another term for rebirth. A rebirth. And I would like to read with you the Canons of Dort and what they teach us on that. Because the Canons of Dort puts it very beautifully. Now you've heard me say that a few times before, haven't you? The Canons of Dort puts it so beautifully, so clearly. And if you turn to me to page 104 
in the in the back of the uh, blue hymnal. So in the back of the blue hymnal, page 104, you can read with me Canons of Dort, Head 3-4, and Article 12. Article 12, where we read this, and this is that regeneration so highly extolled in Scripture, that renewal, new creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive, which God works in us without our aid. Sometimes uh, you hear the term monergism. Monergism. And that's what that word would come from. Without our aid. It is a one-sided work of God. But this is in no wise effected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion or moral persuasion, or such a mode of operation that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable or inexplainable. Not inferior in efficacy or in power to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, that is the author of scripture, the Holy Spirit declares, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated or reborn and do actually believe, that is believe in Christ. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore man also himself is rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. There's the human will. And think of it this way, the human will, that's the, the, the faculty by which we make choices. And the will is always driven by the heart that stands beneath it. Right? The heart, the soul of man, right? And before that will always chose sinfully. It was driven, it was controlled by a heart that was controlled by sinful desires. But now God remakes that heart. He renews it. He empowers it with His Holy Spirit. And now that will begins to fire in a new direction, doesn't it? It begins to choose God. It begins to choose His ways. It begins to choose His commandments. That's the work of regeneration that we so celebrate in our church's congregation. Because we know that this is God's work. And he gives, he gives a, a new direction to the human soul that then makes possible all the other things that we do in the Christian life. Do we believe the gospel? It's only because our heart has been changed. Do we repent of our sins? It's because our heart has been changed. Do we do anything at all that pleases God? This morning we heard no. Everything we do is not pleasing to God. But when God remakes the human heart, now we begin to please God. Now we begin to, there's still much sin in our life for sure. But now there is real actions, real choices that are made that are pleasing to God. Children, one way to think about this, when you think about uh, regeneration, uh, again, I, I don't mean to make light of this, but I, I think it is a good illustration. You, when you think about a, a pig, right, on the farm, and, and if, you, if you know anything about a pig, right, you can put a pig in a, in a pen that is dry. And by some strange miracle, it seems, after a week of living there, the pig has made a mud hole. And, and he loves that mud. 
He sits in that mud on the hot days, right? He's, he's in that mud. He's, he's poking his nose in the mud. He's rolling in it. And, and when he comes out of that mud hole, he's covered with mud. And after eating or feeding or whatever he may do, he goes back to the mud. It's in his nature, right? It's in his nature to love the mud. He loves the wet mud. And, and like I said, you can put a pig into a pen where there's no mud hole, and in no time at all, there is a mud hole. And the pig loves the mud. That is the pig's nature, right? Now think about a cat. You follow me here? Think about a cat. Right? What does a cat do when it gets its paw wet or gets it a little bit dirty, right? You see the cat shake his paw, right? Because he's trying to get that water, that mud off his skin, right? And, and the cat will lick itself constantly. The cat has a completely different nature, doesn't it? The pig has a nature that just, and again, we did talk about this a bit this morning, right? It's inclined. Not just that it occasionally goes in the mud, but it's inclined towards it. It's, it, it runs for the mud as soon as, you, as soon as you release it. It wants the mud. But a cat, right? It, it has the opposite nature. It hates, the, it hates to be wet. It hates the mud. It has a different nature, doesn't it? And now you can think about human beings in the same way, right? That we don't just have, make choices, we don't just act, but we're driven in a certain way by our nature. You might say all our actions tend in a certain direction. And this morning we learned that when our heart is controlled by those sinful desires, it always moves in the direction of, may I say it, mud. Like that pig, right? Now of course it's not sinful for the pig to love the mud, we know that. But again, just to follow through on the illustration, right? The pig has a nature that inclines toward that mud. Right? And when God comes and when He gives His people a new heart and a new spirit, when He sprinkles that clean water upon them, they now have a new desire. Right? A new set. A new heart. A new set of desires that drives them in a different direction. That's the miracle of regeneration that God does in the heart of people. And that is a wonder. That is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. Maybe I can quickly put to you a question. What comes first then? Faith or regeneration? Does God first make the heart of man new? And then a person believes the gospel? Or is it, as so many evangelists tell us today, uh, that first a man believes the gospel, and then God gives you a new heart? Then, then God makes you new. Well, you know how it has to be now, right? It can't possibly be that a person believes the gospel first and then their heart is made new because we learned this morning that they can do nothing that pleases God. So now God comes and He does that work. He remakes them. Congregation, in the second place, hope. You know, this, this doctrine really does rub people the wrong way, doesn't it? But congregation, it shouldn't be so. This is hope. This doctrine represents hope for lost people. And in a very practical sense, I know there are parents here who have children that are not walking with God. I know there are people here who have friends, colleagues, that are maybe very good people. But they're not believers. They're not joined to Jesus Christ. And our hearts ache to see them. Maybe you've spoken to them. 
Especially, it seems also, especially in the case of children, that you talk to them, but you, you can't even make the least headway. And you feel something of what I said this morning, right? That we, we can't, as people, break into the hearts of our children. We can't get into their minds. And that drives us to pray for them. And sometimes we think that that's all that I have left to do is to pray for my children because I sure can't talk to them anymore. I sure can't try to persuade them that the way they're on leads to destruction. Congregation, this doctrine represents hope for you. I don't know if God's going to convert your child. I don't know if God's going to convert your colleague or whatever loved one you may be praying for. But I can say this. God can do things that we cannot. God can reach into the heart of a child, into a young man, into a young woman, into an old man, into an old woman. And He can make them want to change. You can't. All you can do is talk to their ears. But this doctrine, congregation, represents hope for you today. This doctrine is why you can go on praying for those children and never give over praying and never give up. Because God will do something. God can do something. You know, I I put there, in in that point there, Benjamin Warfield, B.B. Warfield, as he's often called, he wrote an article called Children in the Hands of the Armenians. And the basic point of the article is if God will only save those people that make a choice for Him, then what about our children? And he means by this our infant children who pass away, who God takes out of this life. Now the Armenians don't believe that all those children go to hell. I'm not saying that. But their theology leaves us in a very dark place. Because if those children, and mothers, let me speak to you who've miscarried children before, and some of you have maybe even lost living children, what's the only possible hope for those children that we'll see them again in glory one day? Congregation, if it's not a one-sided work of God's grace, then we have no hope of seeing them again. Because they also are lumped in with Adam's sin and guilt. But if, if regeneration is a one-sided work of God's grace that He does without our aid, then there's hope even for those children and hope for even those people that are so mentally uh, incapable of thinking and making choices. Uh, In Grand Rapids, there was a uh, dear parents who had a child that is completely, uh, uh, I guess you'd say almost, he's almost a vegetable. He's just completely incapable. And how many times we prayed for that child uh, before he was born, because they knew there were problems with him before he was born. Then he was born, and now I believe he's probably five, six years old already. And I can't tell you how many times uh, when we met with those parents and when we, when we saw that child there, he, he gets pushed around in a little wheelchair. He's totally unaware. Well, I shouldn't say totally. They tell me he is somewhat aware of his surroundings. But what hope is there for such a child if regeneration is in a one-sided work of God's grace? You don't want to leave your children in the hands of the Arminians, congregation. That's why I say this is a doctrine of so much hope for the people of God. Whether your children are are living in rebellion from God as as older children, or whether your children were whisked away out of this life before they were even born, this doctrine teaches us that God will reach into their souls and save them. 
What a beautiful theology that is. But congregation, I come to my third point, which is just why. And I take you back to those words, not for your name's sake. This salvation congregation that God does for us is not for us. It's not because of something that we offer to God or something that we contribute to Him. Right? This is done for God's name's sake. And what a, what a blessing it is even to, to reflect on that. Because what if salvation was for something that we had to produce? What if our salvation was based on this thing that we had to offer up to God? Or that? Whatever it may be. No congregation, it's good news this evening that salvation is for God's sake. He acts. He acts for His name's sake. And therefore, there's hope for us. There's hope that we can be a people that will glorify the name of God. That we, even after the dark place where we went this morning, in spite of all that, God will act for His name's sake such that we totally depraved people can be remade to be people who will glorify God. We can bring praise to His name. I always think of that psalm that says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and in those that hope in His mercy. Do you, do you believe that congregation this evening? That God takes pleasure in some of the things that you do? I know God takes displeasure in many things that we do and, and we know those all too well. How many times, congregation, haven't we thought about what puts a smile on God's face when we do it? The Lord takes pleasure in those that fear Him and in those that hope in His mercy. Not for your sakes will I do these things, God told Israel, but for my name's sake. Have you learned that in your life? Is that your confession too? Is that your hope? That when you stand before the judge of heaven and earth one day, you can say, Lord, not for my sake, but for your name's sake. That's my only hope. That's what the hymn says. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. And the second verse, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace with it. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to Thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Well, congregation, may that be our prayer. And may God grant it to us and our children for His name's sake. Shall we pray? Oh God, that this evening we can gather as a people to worship your name, to magnify, to lift it up. And Lord, we confess with joy and gladness this evening that it is not for our name's sake. That it is not because of what we offer up to you. But you have done this one-sided work of free and sovereign grace for your name's sake. And Lord, upon that we rest this evening. We take refuge in it. We love your sovereignty, Lord. We love the fact that you have acted for your namesake, that you have acted in such a radical, complete way, that whereas our depravity is total, so also is the renovation 
the regeneration that we experience by the power of your spirit. It's just as total as our depravity is total. And Lord, we rejoice in that. We pray earnestly, O oh God, that you would press these things upon the hearts of young and old this evening. Lord, perhaps there is one here who continues to struggle against sin, who continues to, to wonder how it is that his heart or her heart can continue to, to love sin as they do. Lord, teach them to cry out for this new heart and this new spirit. And grant, Lord, to all your people who still have the remnants of sin within them, who still have some of that old man still left within them that struggles against the new work that you have created within us. Lord, help us to, to never give up on that fight. Help us to fight on. Help us to carry the fight to the enemy. To know, Lord, that the strength is not our own. Not by might, nor by power, you told Zechariah many years ago, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And Lord, I do lift up for those parents this evening who have prayed maybe for years already for wayward children and whose hearts break with tears as they see their children on a path of destruction. Oh God, we pray that you would come. And in, the, in your great power, Lord, that you would stretch forth your mighty arm. That you would go, Lord, where our words cannot go. That you would give them that new heart and that new spirit. That you would break their hard heart. And that you would bring them unto yourself. And that we might have the great pleasure and joy of seeing our lost children walking with you. Lord, please work these things, do these wonders in our hearts and the hearts of our children. To the praise and to the glory of your name. Hear our prayer, Lord. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, who is God over all and blessed forever. Hallelujah. Amen.